lovely song from the Psalms, where the psalmist says, where, where God says in one of the Psalms to his people, seek my face. And the psalmist's response was, I will seek your face, O Lord. Well, we're in Philippians, and we're in chapter 3 of Philippians. If you'd like to have it open in front of you, it would be a help to you. And we're just uh, not covering everything in every part of this, but we are giving a survey more, uh, uh, um, rather more than a survey, but a look at the main teachings of Philippians, this lovely little letter. Chapter 1, we talked about, and it talks about the different aspects of the gospel. And Paul talked about partnership in the gospel and the advance of the gospel and the defense of the gospel and a life worthy of the gospel. But it doesn't enlarge on the life worthy of the gospel in chapter 1, which comes at the end of chapter 1, but it goes on into chapter 2 to speak about some aspects of what a life worthy of the gospel is about. So last week we looked at chapter 2 and that wonderful passage particularly that passage that speaks about Jesus himself, he, who he was and what he did. It's a great hymn of praise and a, a chapter of full of theological content. And uh, there's so much there. Almost every word in that passage is full of meaning. And it would do us well sometime to spend a lot of time looking at those particular um, words, in verse, particularly in verses... Um, 6 to 11. But it finishes with the reminder that all that Jesus did has led to Jesus Christ being recognized as Lord. Christ is Lord. And now we come to chapter 3. And you'll notice in chapter 3 that chapter 3 starts with the word finally. But it's not the end. Somebody has once, well, lots of people have said it's like preachers. You know, they say finally three times before they get to the end. And everybody wishes it was the first time. But this is not really Paul sort of getting to the final point of his sermon. And then in chapter 4 and verse, um, whatever it is, verse 8, where he says finally again. It's not that. It's really, it's finally in the course of the discussion that he's been going on with. He's been talking in chapter 2 about Epaphroditus and I'm not going to go back over that now, but talking about Epaphroditus, and in verse 29 he says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Oh, and let me just remind you again, finally, that you should rejoice in the Lord. And that's where chapter, chapter 3 starts. So it's finally in what he's saying in chapter 2. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he said, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Whatever other issues you may have, whatever other problems you may have, rejoice in the Lord. After all, that's what I keep on telling you again and again and again, he says. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And it means, of course, to take joy and delight in. And Paul does this not only in this letter, but again and again he speaks about the fact that we should be a rejoicing people. They're the, one of the themes of the New Testament, rejoicing. And uh, chapter 4 comes on to it, and we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks' time. But this, this rejoicing is not the sort of flippant, 
sort of happy type of joy. This is a much deeper joy than that. It's something quite different. This is a rejoicing in the Lord. I mean, you can go to a comedy show, can't you? And, um, or turn it on on the telly. And that gives you some joy. You may laugh at the jokes and the stories that they told about people and the stories told about situations and so on. And it's, um, I suppose we laugh at it and some of those things are very, very funny. But the problem with that sort of comedy is, by the time you turn it off, you've almost forgotten what it's about. And it's got not too much that lasts and lasts and lasts. The sort of joy that Paul is talking about is a permanent joy, and not only a permanent joy here upon earth, but it's a joy that goes on and on into eternity. I mean, supposing you won, of course you wouldn't, because you wouldn't be taking part in it, but supposing you won three million pounds on the lottery, now, regardless of the, the morality of doing that, I guess that if you did win three million, you might be full of joy for a while. You might be rejoicing in it. We know that some people it makes them miserable in the end, but some people it does make them happy and so on for a while. But the problem is it's the focus on the here and now, what I can buy here, what I can do now. So I have the liberty of giving up work and whatever else that person might want to do. As I say, it's quite apart from any morality as to whether you should take part in it or not. I mean, it's just temporary, though it sounds fantastic, that amount of money at the time. Now, what Paul's constant emphasis here is, and in this particular chapter is, that the joy he's talking about is something that is eternal, not something that is temporary. It is not something that's limited to this life. In fact, even the sadnesses and the pressures of life, says Paul, can be surrounded by this kind of joy. So he says in chapter 2 and verse 17, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So even his pouring out of himself or being poured out, even that, painful though it was, costly though it was for Paul, it's still a matter of rejoicing. Because Paul has a longer-term view. As he says in Colossians, set your hearts on things above, not on the things of the earth. He says in Romans chapter 5, if you're in the home groups, you thought about it in the home groups this last week, where Paul says we can rejoice in our suffering because of what suffering actually produces. And then he says in, in James, he says, count it all joy when you meet various trials because it's producing something. It's doing something in our lives. So rejoice in the Lord. It's permanent and it's eternal. Now I think that that should make us amongst the happiest people on earth. Paul, when he led us um, earlier on, spoke about Christians who are miserable and walk around with a long face. Well, he didn't actually say that, but he talked about Many people have a view of Christians as miserable, joyless people. And we have to be honest. You can go to some churches where you think that that's the case. I could tell you a few stories about that. And you could tell a few stories about it. And you think to yourself, why would anybody want to come to a church like that? Why would anybody step off the streets to come into a place 
where everything is joyless and everybody's dour and people long black faces and long black suits and long black Bibles and long, you know, everything is sort of black and down. And you, you think to yourself, why would anybody want to be involved? Surely we as believers should be amongst the most joyful people with this sense of eternal joy. We should be those who are filled with joy. And that means, of course, that if we are not, then we are dishonoring to him. Now, this has got nothing to do with the sadnesses that come, and we're rightly saddened of those things that happen. It's right that we grieve. It's right that we're sad when pressures apply to us. But beneath it all, for the Christian, for the believer, there is this deep-seated joy, contentment, and peace in the hands of God. It's exactly the opposite to what Paul talks about in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, do everything without complaining and arguing. That's the dour dullness. That you don't do anything with complaining and arguing. Instead, you rejoice. Because the complaining and arguing all the time is a sign of unbelief. And you read this through the Bible, you see, that not just in the New Testament, King David in the Psalms, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He's going through the valley of the shadow of death and all that sort of stuff and all the pressures upon him. But he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Invisible strength in impossible circumstances. But now he comes on in verse 2 to, he says, now watch out for these dogs. We're talking about the marks of spirituality and he says, uh, first of all, rejoice. And then he speaks of an awareness that we should have. Watch out for these dogs, those men who do evil, these mutilators of the flesh. Now there's a vital connection between verse 1 and verse 2. I mean, is Paul just being rude when he calls people dogs? I mean, it's not very nice, is it? For Paul to call people dogs. He may not agree with them, but does he have to call them dogs? Is that really very good at all? Not very nice. I mean, let's be frank. If a lady came up to me and I didn't like what she was doing and I called her a bitch, you would, I mean, there you are, you're gasping. And rightly so. I mean, we, we just wouldn't use language like that. But if it's a man, we'll call him a dog. That's what Paul does. But that doesn't seem very nice to call people dogs, as he calls them. Is it necessary? Is it really something that's rather uncalled from? Is it a lack of self-control on the part of Paul to call people dogs. Evidently, around the church of that time, there were some people who Paul did not like, especially he did not like what they were doing. And he calls them here dogs, those who do evil, and those who mutilate the flesh. Now, why? Well, first of all, we should remind ourselves that dogs in the New Testament time, were not seen as the fluffy, clean, man's best friend, fluffy dog at home. That's not what Paul is talking about. They didn't have pets in their home quite in that way. I mean, in our culture, we love to have pets. I looked it up when I was preparing, and uh, the BBC reported that we spent... 520 million pounds in one year on buying pets. 
520 million pounds on buying pets. Three years ago in the United States of America, they spent 36 billion on pets in 19, uh, 2007, 2007. 36 billion dollars. But in the New Testament, of course, dogs were seen as dirty, they were smelly, they were mangy, they were half wild, they roamed around in packs, they caused all sorts of problems and difficulties, and they were best avoided. If they came near you, we'd give it a kick to get rid of it, because you might get some disease from it. And all they did was to live on the scraps, the rubbish that people threw out. Still is in some parts of the world just like that. So it was certainly in New Testament times, we're not talking about dogs as we talk about them, we're talking about a real term of reproach for both Jews and Gentiles. They fed largely on garbage and rubbish. Now Paul says there were these people following him around. People in a very similar way. He calls them somewhere else, he calls them Judaizers. And these were people who spent their whole time they were Jewish leaders, Jewish people, who spent their whole time focusing on irrelevant, minor issues, rules, and regulations. He calls them, for example, dogs here. Dogs mostly fed on food that had been thrown out, rotten food. They didn't have fridges, and the food went rotten very quickly, and they just threw it out onto the rubbish tip and so on. And that's what the dogs fed on, scraps and food that was now overripe and rotten, overripe and rotten, and so on. And Paul is saying that these people, they just live on rotten rituals. Things that once were fine, things that once were good, just as food is, but now they were rotten and no longer helpful. They were certainly past their sell-by date. And they were going around saying that these old rituals that were now past their sell-by date they were still important, and everybody should keep them, and they that everybody should live by them. Now, of course, once they were important, the rituals that they, they were talking about, once they were helpful. In fact, they were instituted by God himself, but now they're past their usefulness because Christ has come. And they are actually in danger of destroying what is healthy and helpful. And those who feed on them are just like the dogs that feed on scraps of food that once were fine, but now are rotten. Then he calls them evildoers. These people are called evildoers because they were passionate about bringing people, especially new believers, under the control of these rituals and regulations. He brought them into bondage, and they focused on outward things, things people did and where they went and what they carried and how they dressed and what they ate and all of that sort of thing, just the outward things. And they thought their zeal in trying to focus on these things would really please God and make God bless them. The favorite thing was circumcision. Circumcision in the Jewish culture. And it's a good illustration. They got the idea of it, of course, from the Jewish law because God instituted it way back at the beginning. And they knew that God had given it for a reason, but they didn't realize what the reason was. And they just thought the ritual itself was the important thing. And they said, if we make sure that people do this ritual in their family life, then God is bless. They hadn't thought about what it meant. And Paul says, that's evil, because you're making people trust the wrong things. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. That's very polite language, isn't it? 
mutilators of the flesh. It means, of course, circumcision. These people going around insisting that people should be circumcised. But it had no real meaning at all now because what it spoke of at the beginning was now forgotten all about. The trouble is it has a, those sort of rituals and regulations have a strong appeal to our human nature because we feel, I can tick that one off, I can tick that one off, I can tick that one off. And we begin to feel proud that we've kept all the rules and kept all the regulations and so on. Like keeping the Sabbath day. When I was young, my parents and my grandparents used to try and keep Sunday different. And that is right. We're told to keep the Sabbath day holy. Keep it different for the Lord. And that's right. Now, I'm not saying whether these things were right, but in our family, when you didn't have to... Well, my grandparents, for example, they were about five or six miles from the church they went to. And there was a bus that took them to church, but they wouldn't take the bus if they could possibly help it. They got up um, half an hour or an hour earlier so they could walk to church so they didn't have to make the bus driver work. Of course, he worked anyway, but they didn't want to be part of that. And they wanted to keep it separate. Hazel, my wife, when they drove to church, they had to cross the level crossing. And on Sundays, they would go around the long route round so they didn't have to cross the crossing because at the crossing, the man had to get out and open the gate to let them across the level crossing. And they didn't want them to do that on Sunday. We were not allowed to play sports on a Sunday. We were not allowed to clean our shoes before going out on a Sunday. That was all done on Saturday and so on. I think these sort of things are very helpful and very good. And they're things that we ought to think more about, how we spend our time on the Lord's Day. But I'll tell you something. If those things themselves become the important things so that we're focusing on the rules and regulations and the rituals that we impose, then they're not helpful at all. They've caused us to miss the point completely. And that's what these people were doing with things like circumcision and the keeping of the Sabbath day in those days. And it's so easy to let rules and regulations, which can be and should be very helpful, to let those things become dominant in our lives until it's the keeping of them that matters. And like going to dull churches, you've been to, dull, to churches too, where there's a, almost a little checklist. Is she wearing the right clothing? Is he dressed appropriately? Is he speaking? Now, all those things are helpful and should be thought about. But when they become the dominating factor, they're not helpful at all. So he calls them dogs because of what they fed on, past, discredited, abandoned rituals, evildoers because they were misleading the people, mutilators of the flesh because they focused on the outward things instead of the inward spiritual things. But, he says, verse 3, whereas we, he says, as far as we are concerned, we are different. We worship by the Spirit, verse 3. We are those who worship by the Spirit. And uh, unless you realize that, I mean, I don't know whether you've ever thought that, um, he says actually, we worship by the Spirit of Christ who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. When we come together, we're meeting to worship by the Spirit. It's not the outward 
things that matter, but it's the spirit of our heart. That's why it's helpful to spend some time preparing before we come to worship. I wonder if you get up just a few minutes earlier each Sunday so that we can spend a few minutes just praying and meditating on God's word so that when we come together, we're prepared because we're worshiping by the Spirit. It's not the coming here that really matters. It's the heart involved in it is what Paul is saying. And he said, we worship by the Spirit. There are some branches of the church that will tell you that to do the right thing, you've got to say 25 Hail Marys or you've got to... uh, recite the rosary and all, all those sort of things. The words of those things are not wrong in themselves. Many of them are scripture. But if we think that just doing things by ritual is actually going to make us spiritual people, then we've missed the point. It's not that they're lies or that they're wrong, but the worship that we are involved in is not the outward things, but worship by the Spirit of God. We came to church to worship today, to feed on Christ together by his spirit. Alan Redpath said this. Some people say that in certain churches there's no sense of worship. Maybe they're right. But what do you think can make a a sense of worship in a church, in a congregation? It's not aesthetic beauty. It's not a building. It's not a psychological atmosphere. It is a congregation who have given themselves to God and whose li- in whose lives there is love and sacrifice to the very limit. Then that church is just lit up with the glory of the indwelling Christ. That is a worshipping congregation. So as we meet, we must be careful that we don't focus on buildings and we don't focus on aesthetics. We don't focus on music. We don't focus on rituals, all of which will be rightly done as well as we can and will be involved, but our focus is on the Lord himself. He is our glory. Because there are some churches that have purposely made their church buildings miserable and dull so that nobody would ever worship them. (laughs) I'm not sure that's right either, but we must make sure that we focus on the Lord himself. So we worship by the Spirit. Also, we put no confidence in the flesh. Unlike those other people who put every confidence in the flesh, we put no confidence in the flesh. Rather, it should be on God himself. Now, Paul then illustrates this with himself in in verses 4 onwards. Illustrates it with his own life. He says, look, if anybody had confidence in the flesh, I had more. I was supreme in what I did in service for God. At least I thought I was. And he mentions four things. His ancestry, his orthodoxy, his activity, his morality. His orthodoxy, he said, of all the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Of his orthodoxy, with regard to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee, one of the most strict groups. As for my activity, I was zealous, I persecuted the church, put people to death. And as for my morality, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, he could say. But now, he says, though all those things were important, now my ancestry, in verse 9, is in Christ. My orthodoxy, I just want to know Christ and his resurrection. As for his activity, I just want to be like him in his death. As far as his morality, 
I just want the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. See, the old has passed away. Everything has you for Paul. And consequently, Paul is able to say three things. He says, I recognize progress in the present. And the progress in the present is there in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to hold, take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. There's progress to be made. All of us are involved in that. You have progress to make. I have progress to make. Not one of us can say, well, I've arrived, I've made it. But there's progress to be made in the present tense. As far as the past is concerned, verse 13, he says, I recognize failures of the past. My failures of the past were trying to do things myself. But he said, I'm just forgetting those things. I'm putting them behind me. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. Forgetting what is behind in verse 13. You know, some of us sometimes need to forget the past. The problems and the difficulties of the past, our own self-righteousness in the past, we need to forget those things, put them behind us, as Paul did. And press forwards. And in as far as the future is concerned, in the last part of verse 13 and chapter, uh, verse 13 and 14, I strain to what is ahead. I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now all this, he says, is the pathway to maturity. Not focusing on the outward. Not focusing on the ritual. But focusing on Christ himself. So, it's not too much for Paul to speak about these people who led people astray as being like the dogs who fed on the rubbish, because that's what they're doing spiritually. But, he says, we're focusing on something else. We're in the presence of God, and the Lord Jesus is here, and we focus on him. That's why, week by week, we break bread together, and we're going to do it in just a minute, because we want that our lives will be focused on him. Oh yes, the other things come in, have a place and they come into play, but our focus is on him. And we eagerly await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a day that will be. And when that happens, we shall wonder why ever we were worried about the outward things. We shall rejoice in what he has done and is doing. So in the present, I press forward, forgetting the past, and look forward to the future. Let's pray together before we sing a short song and turn to this table and remember the Lord together. Father, we thank you for the... Apostle Paul's clear thinking and teaching which helps us to walk in the pathway that you've prepared for us. We long to know the maturity of which he speaks. So help us, we pray, to set our sights on things above, not on things of the earth. And help us day by day to press forward to that for which you have saved us, being in the very presence of God to worship you and spend eternity with you. So bless us, we pray, and write the truth of your word, not only on our hearts, but in our behavior too, for Jesus' sake. Amen.